Hello and welcome to The Lowdown, an insider's look at stories touching our lives here on Cape Cod and beyond. My name is Ira Wood, and you're listening to us live today, hence the faux pas, <laughs> on WOMR 92.1 FM Provincetown, WFMR 91.3 FM Orleans, and of course streaming worldwide on WOMR.org. It probably won't surprise any of you to learn that mysteries are the second most popular book genre in the publishing world. And while there are many, many different types of mysteries, the elements are often quite similar. There's the crime, the clues, the quest for the truth. But above all, it's about the journey, which involves learning new things and participating in solving the crime. When I travel to a new city, I often read a mystery that's set there because I can discover a lot more about the local people, the local politics and attitudes of the place from an astute mystery writer than I can from a travel blog. And that even applies to places we assume we know everything about. Today we're talking about a new mystery set right outside the studio from which we're speaking. And even though I've lived here for decades, visited countless art galleries, and known hundreds of painters, the book opened up an aspect of the art world about which I knew nothing. And that is the crime of art forgery. Joining me is Jeanette de Beauvoir, who you know as the co-host of WMR's Arts Week, but maybe you didn't know she is also the author of 14 books. Today we're talking about her latest, The Fine Art of Deception. Jeanette de Beauvoir, who has the second coolest name in all of writing today, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me, Ira. This is a delight to be on this side of the table. <laughs> so, I'm I'm new to your mysteries, um, and this one stars your amateur sleuth and alter ego, Sydney Riley. Tell us about her, what she shares with you, what she doesn't, and how much fun it is to have an alter ego. It's a lot of fun to have an alter ego. All the things I don't dare say in life, I get to put in someone else's mouth, which is wonderful. Um, I do think that Sydney is partly me, but she's also... Um, a little bit braver and a little bit stronger than I am. A lot of the things that I think I'd like to do, Sydney would just do. Um, so I like that about her. I, I want to. I want to be Sydney when I grow up. <laughs> um, I named her for an, an actual person, and in most of my books, this is unfortunately an exception, the one you have, but in most of my books, I put in someone's name as a character who really existed. So Sidney Riley um, was a spy on which Ian Fleming based um, James Bond. So she's got a pedigree there. <laughs> and there are some other people, in, actually, who appear in the book who are, and you actually give them their their actual names. Now, very few, not not an awful lot. I will mention David from the Provincetown Monument makes an appearance in the book, and I don't know all the all the people in Provincetown that you know, of course. So there's probably some others. The character kind of grows with each new book, right? Um, Sydney does. I mean, she changes, which allows you to explore new things. For instance, in this book, she's a wedding planner. Um, an occupation which I assume you had to do research. And in the next book, she'll have moved on to something else. I'm trying to be very careful here. Thank not, you. <laughs> not to 
not to give away stuff. So do you think about that a lot, the changes that she's going to undergo or maybe new interests you want to pursue in, in subsequent books? Absolutely. I mean, that's for, for me, that's the joy of a series is that you don't just get a snapshot of these characters as you do in, in a, a standalone novel, but you get to sort of see them grow and put them in situations that challenge them and see what they do with that. I really like the idea of just... F- thinking of a situation and throwing a group of people in there and seeing how they interact, which is why my novels are never well planned, because they always go off in a tangent. But um, but yeah, that's exactly the, the, the desire. Now, you have to be clever about it. Agatha Christie actually said that if she had known that Miss Marple was going to be part of a series, she would have started her off at age 30 instead of at age 65 or 70 because of course she had a good long long run of it and she was getting more and more elderly as she went so you have to sort of bear that in mind um, that you want to give the person room to grow both you know physically and into their into their next years the next season of their life but also you know in terms of how they approach the world and other people and of course a mystery so the book reflects changes in the town as well. Um, for instance, you have a character who's from Eastern Europe, which of course reflects all the people from Eastern Europe who've moved here like in the last five years or, or, or so. And you talk about the impossibility of finding housing, which is also something that didn't exist even 10 years ago. Right. Uh, so within the structure of the mystery form, there's kind of a lot of freedom to address a lot of stuff. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, you part part of writing a mystery is um, there's a pact with the reader. I think that um, I will give you enough clues to solve this, but I will also make it very difficult for you to solve this because that's the fun of it. And I think that having some of these issues coming out of a real place um, enables you not only to, as you said at the beginning, make the reader feel more a part of that place. But it also gives you some opportunities for red herrings, for people to think, oh, this must have to do with that issue. So they, their brain goes off down that path rather than the one that would actually lead them to the right solution. Yeah, and there are nice red herrings in this book. There's one that involves a bear. Um, and there's, 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 there's many wonderful red herrings in the book. And you even include parents, Sydney's parents, who probably have some characteristics that um, are like your own, like your own dad, for instance. I don't know about your mom. I don't even want to, that woman is, the woman in the book is such a miserable creature. (laughs) She's pretty toxic. Yes, (laughs) that uh, I assume it has something to do with something that you know about. So, So for people who might be curious about writing a mystery, Mm. talk about structuring a mystery. Is there a formula? How does it take shape in your mind? And then how do you go about plotting it out? So I think um, what's true for me for a lot of life is absolutely true for mysteries, which is you learn what the rules are before you break them. Um, And it's okay to break them but you first have to know what they are. And there are some very specific rules for mystery writing, um, some of which I violated in this book. One of them is you should have a body in the first three chapters. Um, I don't have a body in the first three chapters of this, so we'll see how that goes. Um, But, yeah, there's a structure in the sense that um, I think that a lot of people read mysteries not so much 
um, well, perhaps as much for the puzzle, but also for the sense of justice, of fairness. Because out there in the real world, it is not fair and terrible things happen to good people and bad people don't get punished. And we have to live with that unfairness um, because it's the world we live in. With a mystery novel, you know that at the end there's going to be justice of some sort. Yeah, there's going to be pain getting from here to there. Um, but there's going to be justice, which is not always true in the real world. So I always try to think of that as the structure. However, there are mystery writers who will plot out their books chapter by chapter. They know exactly what's going to happen in chapter five. They know exactly which clues they're giving where. Um, and I started out trying to write that way. Unfortunately, or fortunately, or however it works, um, I don't write that way because what happens for me is, as I said, I put these people in a situation, and especially as I've gotten to know them because they've been living in my head for quite a while, along with the other voices, but we won't go there, um, you, you start thinking about, well, this conversation, you, you put them in a dialogue, and suddenly one of them says something that you think, yeah, that's better than what I had. You know, they're the ones leading me. So often my, you know, my first cleanup um, work, you know, my, my second draft, let's say, is always playing whack-a-mole with plot holes because in chapter two, I laid the foundations for something that never happened in chapter eight because they've gone somewhere else. So it's, it's a little bit more work, I think, but I think it's, it's what works for me and it's very true to my characters. They get to tell me how things work. And that's good with me. I'm fascinated that you said that in, in mysteries you're actually supposed to start with a dead body because some years ago, maybe 20 years ago, I wrote a novel in which I thought I'm always trying to start with a beginning that's interesting. So I put a dead body in the beginning and everybody thought the book was a mystery. Because I didn't. Because we got uh, I that forgot, role, yeah. I, I forgot <laughs> to tell them who the dead person was or something. And throughout the whole thing, they were wondering, well, who dies? Is it this one? Is it that one? Or is that one? So I, I must say, I wrote an accidental mystery. An accidental, <laughs> and there's a great title for a book: an accidental mystery. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Lowdown with Ira Wood on WOMR. Today, we're talking about writing mysteries, particularly a new one set right here in Provincetown. The author is your WOMR Arts Week co-host Jeanette de Beauvoir, and her new book is The Fine Art of Deception. So, we all think of the art business in Provincetown as being very local. Uh, artists live here or some are here and they sell their work right on the street and galleries right on the street. How did you come up with the idea of art forgery? Well, sometimes I'm, I, I don't know what, what the what the back and forth is between between what we think we know and what we think we don't know. But what I've noticed is almost always when I start thinking about, you know, oh, what's the next book in the series going to be about? Almost always something happens in my world that kind of points me there. Um, I don't know that there's any relationship between my thoughts and the world out there, but that usually happens. And most of this series, this is the ninth book in, in the Provincetown series, and most of the series takes place during um, different festivals or theme weeks, mostly because otherwise I'd get into the murder-she-wrote trap of having this village where you end up killing off everybody in the village. But in Provincetown, we've got different people coming through with each week, so um, so I pretty much stuck to those, and then I realized I was running out of them. Um, so on, on the 
the book just before this one, um, Dead in the Water, I picked up another Provincetown theme because I happened to be out on a whale watch. And I said, oh, whale watch. I'll put the next book there. And um, so again, you know, now that I'm kind of moving away from Carnival and Bear Week and all those things, um, I thought, oh my gosh, Provincetown is an art colony. Duh. And um, said, all right, I need, I need to look more into art. And the moment I started thinking about that, I swear to you, Ira, I started seeing articles about art fraud here, art forgery there. And I'm sure part of it was that you're just more tuned to the things that you're thinking about. But there also seemed this year to be an awful lot of that going on. And I knew nothing about it. So the research for me is just as exciting as the writing. I really like the idea of your art forgery scheme, centering not only on world-renowned art, um, but historical Provincetown artists. So, and I hope I'm not giving away that much here, but, but you focus on an artist who I actually knew his wife, and that is Edwin Dickinson, uh, who who lived in P-Town. And I, I was... Because I was um, enthused by your book, I looked up more about him. And that, that's what mysteries will do. They'll excite the reader, too, to find out more. So talk about developing that idea of using a local artist who might easily be forged because he's not that famous. Right. Yeah, that's the... Uh, although there are a lot of... Um, forgeries that are done obviously on on very famous works of art and um, and that happens a lot. I I've been trying to keep this series sort of um, closer to home. I mean, what you said at the beginning uh, is exactly what happened to me. I read some Donna Leon books about um, it's a mystery series set in Venice, and it gave me such a sense of Venice from the inside, from the perspective of the people there. And so I, I've I've wanted to keep that sense here. I didn't want, you know, people running off to New York or Tokyo or, or something trying to figure this out. And um, I had a long conversation with Christine McCarthy who, um, from Provincetown Art Association Museum. And she suggested in particular Charles Hawthorne, who was part of the beginnings of the, um, of the whole art colony here, because he's moderately famous, but not world shakingly famous. Um, and I'm not sure that that makes it easier to forge. I think people who are forgers have, are immensely talented. Um, but I do think that it would mean the hue and cry around it and the publicity around it would be less. There's less of a light shown upon that, a, a lesser artist, shall we say, a lesser known artist than um, someone like a Degas or a Van Gogh. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, 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 and that's the same reason I choose real people when I can to put in the book. I always ask their permission, obviously. Um, but to make it for people visiting or even for people who live here to make it feel like, yeah, this is real. This is rooted in this community because I believe that all of our emotions are played out in a context. And murder is one of the things that gets played out in a context. So the murders that I write about would be very difficult to take from here and put, let's say, somewhere in England, because they're all connected to P-Town in some way. I had no idea that international art forgery is tied up with trafficking. I mean, you, you taught me that. You taught me a lot of things in the book. Talk about that connection of trafficking and art forgery. How are they connected? Yeah, so um, I'll, 
a lot of times, and and I've I've done some volunteer work with with people been trafficked. We tend to think of trafficking as being only about sex. That's what makes the news. That's you know what's splashy, and in fact. That does happen, and it's horrible, but it's actually a very small percentage of the people who are trafficked. Um, Many people are trafficked who don't have any skills, and um, they end up being housekeepers and nannies and all sorts of things like that. But there are also people um, who, and and traffickers aren't stupid, you know, they take a look around and they see what is available to them and see what they can match that up with, so to speak. So if you found someone who was a budding chef, for example— um, and came out of a poor situation, and you could talk them into, let's go to New York, and you can work for Gordon Ramsay or something, um, and they end up being trafficked. And it's the same with the art world, that if it's very rare to find someone who's got the kind of skill set that's required for either a really good fake or a really good forgery. Um, and once you find someone like that, if you are of that particular criminal mind, you might think, hmm, I can use this. Now, you're not going to go up to somebody and say, hi, would you like to do some fakes for me? Um, But you can persuade them in many different ways. And unfortunately, in the world, there are a lot of ways to persuade people to do something they don't want to do. One of the charms of the book, of course, is a history of the Provincetown Inn. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's a place where I've walked through and I've seen its empty ballrooms and those strange things those strange rooms which you told me are shops, and especially something that I had no idea about, do do they really have a large underground kitchen? Yes, they really do. Which which plays importantly into the book. It's sort of an invisible prison, not prison, but um, kitchen that nobody knows anything about. Right. So people have lived here a long time do know. I actually referenced someone whose name I didn't use because I didn't have permission to. But um, at one time, once the kitchens, you have to understand that Provincetown Inn is huge. It's absolutely huge. And it's kind of echoey and scary to us now because it's so big and so neglected in some ways. But at one time, it was the bustling center of people staying in Provincetown. So there was so much going on. So, of course, they had big kitchens because they had they had to do ballrooms and four different restaurants and all sorts of things. So there were these huge kitchens that eventually were not used. But um, I think it had to be over 15 years ago because I've been here for 15 years. But probably about 20, 25 years ago, there was a fellow in town who um, – was doing a lot of work for the homeless. And he would go down there and he would make suppers, um, not for any guests, but for people who needed the food. And I really wanted to mention that, even though I didn't have um, permission to, to be specific about it. I also didn't have permission to go down there and set a lot of the book action down there. Um, but it's one of the things I have found amazing as I've written this, every single book in this series, I've learned something new about Provincetown um, by doing research. There are things that I had no idea about. Did you know we were once a stop on the on the Underground Railroad? I we don't were. think I knew that. There you go. Um, just all these lovely little tidbits that um, I think in some ways attach me more to this town. Um, but also, I hope we'll attach readers more to this town, whether they're here as visitors or whether they live here. So the the occupation of Sidney Riley in the book is a wedding planner. Now, I imagine that you had to talk to people who are wedding planners, although I do know that you have many odd jobs. And you, I thought, well, she could have been a wedding planner. I don't know. And you're a very organized person. I think. I don't know. 
But um, I'll go with that. Okay. No, that sounds good. That sounds All right. good. <laughs> so the question is, you have in the book the most ridiculous, long-lasting wedding I have. You talk about, tell us about this wedding. It lasted for like three days. I, and people were like constantly eating and it started in one place and went to another place and there were pedicabs and taking people places. Was that based on a real that's, wedding? That's a, that's not um, unfamiliar, shall we say, to people in Provincetown, that kind of um, going from one place to the other for the wedding because we don't have, you know, we don't have like the, the Chatham Bars Inn where you can have this one building and everything takes place there. I am not a wedding planner. I will tell you that I would totally... I'm trying to think of a word I can say on the radio. I would be t totally awful at being a wedding planner. However, um, I do um, celebrate weddings. I am an officiant, and I work with a woman who's a wedding planner. So watching her, I realized, you know, one of the things you want to think about with mysteries is if you're writing a mystery that's not a police procedural, that's not there for the people who are doing their job, your protagonist has to have some sort of flexibility in their schedule. Because if you work nine to five in an office, you're not going to be able to go out there and interrogate suspects or, you know, whatever, follow clues or whatever other things are going on. So I thought, you know, this wedding planning business is pretty nice because it's intense while it's happening. But then there are long periods where you're just, you know, planning on paper. You're maybe meeting with people. You're maybe not doing anything. Um, so that was that was absolutely the reason I gave her that job and the reason I'm moving her away from it is because I am t so tired of it <laughs> as I say I'm not a wedding planner <laughs> if you're just joining us you're listening to the lowdown with Ira Wood if you've ever wanted to write a mystery listen up because today we're talking to a local writer who's written a lot of them set right here in Provincetown my guest is your WOMR Arts Week co-host Jeanette de Beauvoir and her new book is the fine art of deception. So talk about Sydney's boyfriend. Now he he's not somebody of course I would have ever imagined to find in Provincetown. He's a Lebanese Muslim man who works for the Department of Homeland Security. That's a right. pretty exotic choice for a Provincetown character. How did that come about? So what happened was, um, and this is one of those cases that the characters told me what to do. I had set him up as sort of an antagonist in the first book in the series, way back in the first book. Um, and I, I had absolutely no plan for her to get together with him. He was working for ICE then. He was working um, in a different department. He was um, looking at fake marriages, which is how he came here, because there are obviously some fake marriages that happen so that people can get citizenship. And I'm not against that. Um, but he came to explore that, and he and Sydney um, became very antagonistic. And, of course, as you know, in fiction generally, when two people are that antagonistic, eventually they're going to kiss. It's just going to happen. And it did. And I was going to leave him behind after that first book, and I just got so much um, reaction from readers about him. Um, all the gay men in town think he's just the most gorgeous thing alive so I have to keep him alive for them <laughs> but also I think you know I had sort of insert once once I started thinking about it I thought you know one of my goals with this series in particular although all my writing is to um, reduce the sense of othering that we do that there's me and there are people like me and everybody else is very different and so I've tried to introduce them to you know um, to 
to trans people in one of my book and to lesbians in another my, and just you know sort of weave these people into as they are woven into um, the fabric of this place, but also maybe, you know, to inspire someone who hasn't encountered a trans person that they know of to see them as real people. And then I thought, well, you know, with some of the anti-Muslim feelings that, that are around in the world, it wouldn't be bad to have a sexy guy be Muslim. And I haven't really leaned on that yet. I um, did have a book in which his sister, who wears hijab, um, came to visit and um, and I went through a little bit of, of you know, um, how some people who practice Islam feel about the awful things that other people who practice a different kind of Islam are doing. Um, but I think that he's going to come more to the fore in the next couple of books. So stay tuned. Do you go back through, do you, do you, are you, is it easy for you to read your old books or are you oh, God, one of no. those writers who, who really can't do that? I can't because I am a better writer now than I was two weeks ago. I'm a better writer now than I was 10 years ago. If I look at something I wrote 10 years ago, all I want to do is is oh, write it over again, change everything, edit it, you know? So no, I can't. And I don't read reviews either. So your book is published by Homeport Press, which calls itself a collaborative venture. Tell us about that. Um, so it's mostly that, it, by one of those wonderful coincidences, I was at a book fair, um, and I, was, I, I had my Montreal series at the time that I was, I was selling, and I was next to this man, and we had a long conversation about all sorts of things in life. You know, you know you're stuck there at a book fair. You talk for hours. And, um, and I said, you know, I've been thinking about writing a series, a mystery series that takes place in Provincetown. And he said, I've been thinking about starting a publishing house. And we looked at each other and said, okay, that's what we're doing. Um, so it's, it's a little bit hybrid publishing in the sense that um, I do obviously, um, you know, get royalties and, and, and so on. There's no advance as there are with more traditional publishers because it's just a small. And you've done a lot of books with, with traditional publishers I as have, well. Yeah, yeah, with St. Martin's primarily, yeah. Um, but, you know, I will tell you this. Um, St. Martin's, God bless them, thank you for publishing me, but in terms of marketing, what they said they would do is, if you tweet something, we will retweet it. Now, granted, they've got a bigger audience, perhaps, than I do, but that's not a marketing plan. Um, so I, I like the fact that, you know, I know the publisher. I, I speak with him a couple of times a week. Um, he's always got suggestions and ideas, as do I, for how to promote these books and how to to get more people reading them. And I like that very personal approach. So he does not actually live in Provincetown. He does. Oh, he, he does. does. Yeah. And you met, but you happened to meet him in Montreal. Oh, no, 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 no. I'm sorry. I, I wasn't clear. I was at a book fair here. Oh, I see. It was my Montreal series that takes place in Montreal that I was selling at the time. I see. That was just before the Provincetown series. <laughs> is it a lot more satisfying to write about your hometown than it is to write about um, someplace else? I don't know that it's more satisfying. I probably know more about it and I'm more excited about discovering things. But I've almost always felt like anchoring um, stories in a real place um, it's not just lazy. I think, you know, it's, it's so, all right, in some ways it's lazy because I don't have to make all this up. But it's also, I think, important because strange and terrible things and wonderful things happen everywhere. But if you can define the place where it's happening, you're giving it that context. Um, and 
I think that's important. So there is a rumor that your next, in your next mystery novel, the murder victim is a tall studio engineer with dreadlocks who's discovered in the bushes of an art gallery after being thrown out of a second-story window. Is that I, I've true? Been, I've been trying to quell that rumor. I have been trying so hard to quell that rumor because I hate it when people know about my book in advance. I will say no more. <laughs> you ever think about going down Cape after you finish with Provincetown? Yeah, Wellfleet's next. Way. Oh, Wellfleet's <laughs> Well played, well played, No, actually, I'm starting a new series sort of in tandem with this, and it involves a lot of travel because that's my next goal is to say, all right, where do I want my next book set? Athens? All right, that's where I'm going on vacation. And you can tax deduct it. Absolutely. Yeah, but I, and I, know, I know exactly what you mean about publishers, large publishers not helping authors out. I discovered just the other day, I was talking to someone who publishes all his books with the New York Press, that the in an author tour... Yeah, they're happy to send you on an author tour as long as you pay for it. Right. They'll right. set it up. Uh, you pay for it. Yeah. Um, and there goes your advance. Which blew my mind. So I think right. that a lot of people are very, very happy with um, with small presses. And um, I'm so glad you have one. And there are other Provincetown authors who publish with that publisher as well. Correct, so correct. Yeah, I, I think, and I, and I think also it's just... It it makes more sense, and that you've got more of a connection. But you're still you're still with a publisher per se, which means there's a gatekeeper. It's not like self publishing where this afternoon I could throw something on Kindle. Mm-hmm. And we know plenty of those. Uh. My guest today has been local mystery book author Jeanette de Beauvoir. I want to thank Matthew Dunn, who is very much still alive right now, not for much for, for his tech work on the show. The Fine Art of Deception was recently published by Homeport Press. This is Ira Wood with the lowdown on how to kill off or otherwise get even with everyone you know in a safe way, one interview at a time. Bye for now. (laughs) The number of fatal accidents in radio is greatly (laughs) underreported. That was great.